1: What's up, groovy people? This is the Modern Musicology Podcast. My name is Alan, and with me is Rob Levy. Hey, kids. Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. And not with us tonight, unfortunately, mm-hmm. is our buddy Andy Williams. <laughs> Andy Williams. Anthony
0: Williams. <laughs> <laughs> what
1: <laughs> the fuck?
0: He's not with us either, Andy he Williams. He is not.
1: It's our buddy, Anthony Williams. On assignment. Yeah, on assignment. Yeah, he's watching the Super Bowl. Well, <laughs> I mean, we're literally recording while Rihanna is probably performing right now. So <laughs> what kind of music fans are we?
0: <laughs> hey, I was Hot- watching the Puppy Bowl. Forget it. I don't. Know. <laughs> oh yeah, man,
1: that's my favorite thing. Okay, so the year is nineteen seventy-three. Fifty years in the past. To get us started, here is a list of some of the key musical events that happened that year, just to kind of like put us, uh, kind of set the stage. January 30th, Kiss performs their very first concert at the Coventry Club in Queens, New York. And June 29, Ian Gillen quits Deep Purple. July 3rd, David Bowie retires his Ziggy Stardust persona at the end of his British tour. On August 6th, Stevie Wonder is seriously injured in a car crash outside of Durham, North Carolina, and spends four days in a coma. (gasps) August 11th, DJ Cool Herc originates the hip-hop genre. Hell yeah. That is amazing. November 20th, day before my birthday... The Who opened their Quadrophenia U.S. tour in San Francisco. Keith Moon passes out on stage, and 19-year-old fan Scott Halpin is selected from the audience to finish the show.
0: How crazy (laughs) is that? That's (laughs) I
1: know, right? December 3rd, CBGB's opens in uh, Manhattan, New York. And on December 31st, ACDC performed their first show. So, that's a heck of a year. That's a
0: closer of a year, December 31st.
1: The biggest selling single of the year was Tony Orlando and Dawn, Tie a Yellow Ribbon, Round That Old Oak Tree. It was also the biggest selling single in the UK, oddly enough. The biggest selling album in the US was War. The World is a Ghetto. Hmm. And the biggest selling UK album was uh, Elton John's Don't Shoot Me.
0: So, Which I'm going to be talking about.
1: Yes. I uh, figured somebody would. <laughs> okay, so that's sort of our little stage setter for 1973. Um, let's get started with our uh, diving into the stuff that's, uh, you know, that is important to us. And I just want to say, the year starts out incredibly because uh, January 5th, the debut album of both Bruce Springsteen and Aerosmith come out same day. I mean that's yeah that's that's, a crazy way to start the year off.
0: That's a heavy way to start the year off. That's amazing. Yeah, and I will I will uh, add to the January uh, fiesta um, <laughs> because Elton John's "Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player" came out on January twenty second. I just want to like run down. There's there Elton John is something I want to come back to, but there's because he had two albums that were incredible out this this year. Mm-hmm. But there's a few bands that I just want to list, and I know we might re- we'll revisit some of them, that had multiple albums out this year. Yoko Ono had two albums out. Roxy Music had two albums out. The Partridge Family had two albums out, and David Cassidy had one album out. So he, had, in effect, he had three albums out because he mm-hmm. did sing on those Partridge Family records. Yeah. Elvis Presley had four albums, two studio albums, a live album which was the most huge al- aloha from hawaii which was insane mm. um and also uh this the, the record company released like a compilation wings had two albums out uh so i just want to go back to elton john i, I want to talk about elvis more in depth too and i know you guys want to talk probably about roxy and wings and stuff but elton john just from the, this one album only had crocodile rock which was an insane huge hit mm-hmm. number his number first number one in both the u.s and canada and daniel which was number one in canada and number two in the u.s um I, it, j- if he had that alone that would be insane and i just have a little anecdote about how he got the name for that album um he was at groucho marx's house and groucho held out his like finger in the shape of of a gun and pointed it at him and Elton raised his hands and said, don't shoot me. I'm only the piano player. Yeah. So <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that um, is hilarious. And as if that wasn't enough in January, he, in October, he had goodbye yellow brick road, double album, opus candle in the wind, the title track, goodbye yellow brick road, Benny and the jets, Saturday nights are right for fighting harmony. All the girls love Alice funeral for a friend. Love lies bleeding. I mean, just yeah. think about that
1: yeah quite possibly it, the best album he ever recorded
0: it, it it's actually his best-selling album too which mm-hmm. is not shocking and it was uh, inducted into the grammy hall of fame in 2003 that album yeah. but it, he was on fire and these two albums both also ha- they had davy d nigel on them um Goodbye Yellow Brick Road had more than just that core band. Ray came into the picture and mm-hmm. actually he, D's on that on backups. And there's, a, there was just like a cavalcade of people on that album, but Gus Dudgeon produced both of these albums. I mean, he was just on fire.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was a great time, you know, and um, this is right around the time that I really started to listen to top 40 radio. So all the stuff that we're talking about tonight on 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 this show is stuff that is so formative to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Elton John songs hugely hugely important when I was first kind of coming into my own musically speaking. Um, but I want to go back to the um, the Bruce Springsteen and the Aerosmith mm-hmm. because Aerosmith the f- their first big single "Dream On." I mean, that was massive. And I remember, I mean, that's one of my earliest memories from, uh, you know, when I first started kind of coming aware of current pop culture. You know, Dream On is one of the first things that I remember and just being sort of entranced by that song. You know, like I just thought it was, it was interesting it was such a great tune it was so different from anything i'd ever been exposed to by that point so you know that's great stuff and then when you've got um this first bruce springsteen album the first track is blinded by the light which of course became a big hit later on um but all these other great songs and it would be his third album um born to run which just was really the first big thing that i ever heard from him and you know, but what a first album to put out. it's yes. Amazing.
0: Yeah. You and know? I like how you say that you're, you're, you know, that was sort of your formative, you know, me- your years in memory for music that I try in this year. There were so many amazing albums. There were so many things to pick, but I tried to pick things that I remembered when I was, you know, seven, eight years old, mm. that mm-hmm. that was popular on the radio. So that was impactful in my life. Yeah. Uh and that I remembered at the time, which was a little different, difficult because I was so young, but I yeah. you were even younger than me. <laughs> well, here's yeah.
1: here's an interesting little um uh an anecdote about the first Bruce Springsteen album is that when it came out, Bowie was clearly taken by it because later in the same year. Uh, Bowie records an album called Pinups, Ups, and we're going to come back to Bowie a little bit later, um, which is a, a covers album because the record label is like, dude, you're on fire right now because everybody's on this like Ziggy kick and we got to get another record out. And he's like, I don't have enough stuff written yet. So they did it. They just went in the studio and did a quick covers album. And these two songs didn't end up on that record, but they did uh, cover two of the songs from Bruce Springsteen's first album. Really? And, uh, it's hard to be a saint in the city and growing up. And I will say I don't like either one of Bowie's recordings of those.
2: <laughs>
1: but there you go. So so already Bruce Springsteen is like, you know, hitting Making it him, out of the park. Yeah. Out of the Asbury park. But a
2: bunch.
0: What you got, Rob?
2: Well, I was five. So <laughs> most of my most of my memories of 1973 are just sort of music I heard by osmosis, kind of just by being in the house uh, and around, mm-hmm. um, which which mainly covers, um, you know, Elton John. But, you know, a lot of it is stuff I came back to, sort of. I'm, I'm sort of the opposite of you guys. It's stuff I came back to uh, retroactively. So that's sort of my way of having 1973. The other thing that's interesting about 1973 for me is that a lot of these records that came out in 73 would in various ways, shape, or form be hugely impactful for things coming later in the decade or later in the next decade. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of the glam records of Roxy and Bowie and T-Rex would come back when we're doing uh, the new romantics and later wave. A lot of the Springsteen and some of the Jackson Brown stuff would come back you know, in the late 70s, again, as these artists made, got deeper in their catalogs, right? A lot of the countries you're like, Johnny Cash put out a record, I think, every five months, right? <laughs> but, like, um, that was the beginning of, like, sort of the rebel country because you had, Dylan, um, you had Cash still making records. But you, reggae sort of planting its flag in America with Marley. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on that you may not necessarily think of right away, Uh, Once you get past, you know, the known big records, you know, for me, too, I know both of those Springsteen albums are great. Uh, I've listened to them sort of in hindsight, you know, after I really discovered Springsteen. And I like those records because I think it's an innocence of um, of an artist in Springsteen. You know, he's not big yet and he's sort of trying to figure out where he is and where he's going and what he's doing. And I like the, you know, I like the energy they both have too, you know, compared to his other stuff. And I think they're very important to understanding who he is. But I also think it's important to sort of understand where the state of American songwriting is in 1973, too. Like, you know, what what does an artist have to say? What kind of songs does he want to write? That that's he or she, sorry. Um that's that's kind of an interesting time to sort of see where songwriting is as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's so funny when you talk about Springsteen and you're saying, you know, he, this is a time in his career when he's not a big name. It's so funny to think of Springsteen as not having been huge. Yeah. You know, it's funny to think of him as a brand new artist who is, you know, untried, untested. He's got a brand new album out. No one knows who he is. You know, yeah. it's, that's just because so, he just seems like one of those ever present figures that's always been enormous
2: and it's one of the few times you know when he's playing live it's not eight hours well not, yeah because he, he's open it for the people. yeah yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> well it wouldn't and, be
1: until his second album when rosalita comes out and rosalita can go on for half an hour if he wants
0: it to. <laughs> well that that's a good point um there's a couple other artists that that had there wasn't their f- debut album like for bruce but who really had huge breakthroughs in 73. And I'm just thinking about Hall and Oates with Abandoned Luncheonette with, with, mm. with the hit She's Gone. I mean, that was mm-hmm. their one of their first huge, huge hits. And Billy Joel, Piano Man. I mean, that that was really his breakthrough album too. Yeah,
1: yeah. I love She's Gone. I think that, mm. that I don't like the chorus very much, but I think the the verses are amazing. Like they just, they set this picture in your mind. Yeah. It's just like this gritty street scene kind of thing with like steam coming up from the gutters along the the, the side of the street or whatever. Yeah. God, I just love it so yeah. much. And then the chorus comes along and I'm like, eh, that's just a, <laughs> you know, just kind of a plain old song chorus. But then the verses start back up again. I'm like, holy shit, now I'm engaged again.
0: Yeah, they're super moody and yeah. it's really cool. That's pro- yeah. produced by Arif Martin. That was a great, oh man, that mm. was a great album. That, that whole album. And it really you're you're that's an interesting point about the the chorus i never really thought about that for the song i mean it just showcases his their voice Mm -hmm. voices really yeah but yeah (laughs) it's kind of a throwaway chorus
2: so i uh you know when when i was looking back at 1973 the first record that really came to my mind was raw power um, yeah baby which you know is probably the one record that you know Growing up, I sort of knew it was from 1973. It's like if I just carried one record around from 1973 growing up, it was Raw Power by 80 <laughs> And I probably didn't know it was from 1973 at the time. Um, but that record just plowed through everything in its path. It was just like a wave uh, when mm. it came out. And the thing is, we're talking about a lot of these records from 1973. And you can listen to them now and they have a certain style and a feel and they are of the era, but you listen to Raw Power and you may not be able to tell it's from 1973, right? Yeah, agreed. Um, But everything from like Nirvana to The Strokes to Soundgarden to Tool to like Nine Inch Nails, everything in subsequent decades all happens because of Iggy Pop record, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the huge profound... um, path of convergence that that record makes with David Bowie later, right? Yeah. I think, I, so there's a lot of little interesting seeds being planted that would come down later that I think are interesting. But for me, you know, it's just if I had to only take one record with me from 1973, it's Raw Power, as much as I love the Bowie records. But it's just, I can always listen to it. It's got a very primal fear to it that's really great. And the production's on it. Are interesting, as it sounds like a record that was produced after 1973, but it's 1973, and I don't know how it was thought of in terms of production value standards. But it just—it's just—I uh, was trying to listen to this album through the lens of 1973 with my old headphones and on on a cassette, um, and it—it it does have a certain swagger to it that a lot of these records don't have. Um, so for me, that's the big, that's the biggie. That's the elephant in the room.
0: Picking up on your thread about how it would have an impact on stuff in the future. So that record, which sort of almost bridged a gap between like glam rock and punk Mm -hmm. and, um, the, of course the Bowie stuff. And I want to mention, this was, uh, Susie Quattro had a a debut album this year, which was really huge. Um, there was like three singles, my favorite is 48 crash. And, and, and I want to tell you why it's because 10 years later in 1983, when I was going to dance at and hanging out there and living there, basically that that was played over and over as was Ziggy stardust as was Iggy Mm. pop. So those albums, they continued to not only just be played, but influenced the scene then. So the, the whole yeah. new wave, but punk and all those other kind of scenes that those were still influential years and years later.
2: Well, mm-hmm. actually, I was going to bring this up later, but I'm glad you brought it up for the context. That Susie Quattro record is probably more influential on the Riot Girl movement mm. than the Blackhearts records, which would come later. Or um, in the
0: Runaways. I mean, maybe. Oh, well, the Runaways. The yeah, runaways. that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah the Runaways.
2: Yeah. Um, so it's, it's almost... Hand in hand with Iggy, you know, almost mm-hmm. it's sort of like it's like the girl version of Iggy. Not to it, no, qualify, really, but yeah. Um, and you know, the thing that bothers me about Susie Quattro when I look back at all this is that, and I and, and again, I'm I'm looking at it through the lens of a, of an older person looking at 1973. I don't understand why Susie Quattro wasn't bigger. I I, <laughs> yeah. I just don't I don't get it. Right? I just I look at everything that she's made in terms of her output and the records and the presentation and i'm just like yeah. why why isn't Susie quattro like a household name i don't understand this i i just she was weird. a
0: household name but it became it was because of happy days so. yes
2: exactly and <laughs> well, i don't know that they... she was a household name her character was
0: her, yeah leather tuscadero was a name. <laughs> and that name. may
1: have that may have been a detriment mm. you know that she w- wasn't able to establish her own identity she was known as this character <laughs> maybe maybe i don't know i've never thought about that before
0: yeah, because I don't know what the time frame of the Happy Days years were. Yeah. Well, the year, I think, probably think it was, but it was, it was probably around then, though.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, the, Escanaro, the other thing. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> all right. us back on track. The other thing that was interesting. <laughs> uh, the other interesting thing for me is that the Holy Trinity of, you know, Al Green, Marvin Gaye, and Stevie Wonder all made records that year that mm-hmm. sort of did different things. Call Me by Al Green, just sort of like put him over. Like, that's like, okay, he's on the map now. Where Stevie Wonder with intervisions that sort of like continued his evolution as an artist. Mm-hmm. And then Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye, you know, had he not made What's Going On, Let's Get It On is the other record people are going to remember him for, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just for, you know, Austin Powers movies and things, but it really is great. And, You have two records by The Temptations that year, or you have a record by The Temptations that year called Masterpiece, which is kind of a concept album. The first record recorded at Hitsville U.A., which is huge for recording for African-American artists because it's a studio sort of of their own uh, that's more modern than Motown and bigger and they can do more, more of a beast. But then you also get Papa Was a Rolling Stone later, which was huge, right? so it's a really good year for soul music, too. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of the soul that you hear uh, in 1973 is going to come back later and influence Springsteen. It's going to influence Bowie with Young Americans. It's going to come down the pipe later and sort of manifest itself with you know the new soul movement later and even, even now to a, to a little bit. Um, but it really was a great year for soul. And even one of my favorite records from that year uh, is the eighth record from Dusty Springfield called Cameo. It's not one of her best, right? But its I like it. I love it. It's, you know, so you have these soul singers of all shapes and sizes making really great records, um, most of which is born out of the Civil Rights Movement or the times, you know, the war and, and protest songs and things. And the music is just really, really, really incredible.
1: All right, so I want to go as far away from soul as you could possibly get in <laughs> 1973. I want to mm-hmm. give us the Prague Report <laughs> yeah. 1973. Now, one of the most significant albums in the history of rock music was released that year that we've already kind of talked about you know, pretty much in depth in a, a couple of episodes ago when we did our Abbey Road show, and that is Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. mm which came out on March 1st and Jesus just changed the game all around. So um, for anybody who wants to h- hear more about that, go back and listen to our Abbey Road show. Uh, you should anyway, cause that was a fun show, but we also got the debut album from queen, which is hugely yeah. significant. We got passion play by Jethro Tull. We got um, a, one of my favorite bands, Renaissance, uh, a great album called ashes are burning. And then my two the two biggest prog bands are, are put out two albums that year. And both of them did a live album and a studio album. So we start with um, we're gonna start with Yes. Um, in May 18th, they released Yes Songs, which is their first live album, and is just an incredible, credible record. Um it, it really gives you a snapshot of the band at that time and gives you new arrangements of some of the songs that you're familiar with. Plus, of course, a lot of the early songs were recorded with different band members than what's on the the live album now. So you get a sort of a different interpretation of a lot of those songs. And it's just amazing. But then later on, December 7th, like very end of the year, they put out Tales from Topographic Oceans, which Mm -hmm. is the monumental yes record of all time so it's a two record set so you've got four sides you also have four songs each song is an entire side of a record so ranging between 18 and 22 minutes uh, are four songs that sort of have this thematic tie to them and it's one of those albums that that kind of divides fans, but I love every single second of it. A lot of people, including Rick Wakeman, who played on the album, thinks it's bloated and you know overstuffed with ideas that don't really go anywhere. I love every single second of it. But then the other one is Genesis. Mm-hmm. In July twentieth, they released Genesis Live, which is probably their I think their best live album ever. It's that early gabriel lineup that's where they're just like playing just raw stuff and it's so great but then in october they release what i still think is the best genesis album ever made selling england by the pound Mm -hmm. an incredible incredible record it's just a a perfect album in every way if you're into that prog kind of stuff which i am um is just solid just some of the greatest greatest epics they've ever recorded so
0: are you into Prague? just kidding <laughs> i know right
1: i i hide it so well <laughs> that but I, love all that. I,
0: it. I love yeah. all that
1: overblown you know he, you know really in in-depth detail arrangements and oh, i just love it all yeah yeah
0: can I? am going to go 180 degree opposite from Prague. Nice. Can I do that? Yeah. <laughs> are we all allowed to do that now? Or are you done uh, with yeah. the Prague report? Sure. Okay. Um, and I'm going to talk about you know who I'm going to talk about the Osmonds. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> no, but it, like it does show you the diversity of the hat. This year was wacky. I think there was so many different kind of styles that were big, real big. Yeah. So. Right, I'll just st- start with the Osmonds, The the Plan, which didn't really do too well for them. It did, it wasn't a huge hit as their, as some of their previous albums, and they were kind of waning in popularity at this point because there was like the DeFranco family was coming up and there was, like, there was some other, you know, teen pop kind of stars that were really like rising at that point. But it was an attempt to sort of encapsulate their Mormon beliefs and put that to song and get it out there into the world. And they did it. And I actually think there's one really super amazing song from that album that I, I love and I still play. It's called going home. So that came out in in June, but Marie Osmond is who I really want to speak about because this was her debut album, paper roses. She was 13, came out in September uh, she reached number one with the single Paper Roses on the um, the Billboard Country Singles, the AC Contemporary Singles, the Canadian Country Singles, the Canadian Pop Singles Chart, and it went to number five in the U.S. Pop Singles. And the yeah. whole album went to number one on the Billboard Top Country Album Chart. So, so it was like major breakout for her. Mm-hmm. She was only 13. She had an incredible... Uh, uh, cast playing on this record and, and including the Jordan singing singing backup for her. Mm. So it was, you know, she she made an, a name for herself right out of the gate at 13.
1: A, it was a great song, too. I remember when I was just a kid and hearing that song. Yes. And it, it's a nice song.
0: It's a great. And, you know, I've, I listen to it a lot, actually, still. And her voice is so incredible then for just 13. And she still yeah. got that I mean, obviously, she's improved singing-wise and and just like being able to use her voice, but she still had that amazing tone at thirteen.
1: Yeah, yeah, she really did. I mean, her voice really matured early. Mm-hmm. You know, and you see that in a lot of these, uh, those acts that were coming up at that time, like, like Michael Jackson, look how young he was when, oh, he, yeah. when he was really, you know, belting out the leads on those. I mean, that was earlier than this, but, you know, Stevie Wonder when he was just 13 and putting mm. out fingertips, I mean, just, I mean, incredible stuff.
0: And Donny Osmond. I mean, he had an insane voice. And he still does. It's just obviously, though, when they're young and they have that really super high thing that they're going at, you know, that's <laughs> he and Michael Jackson had that. So yeah. 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 All right. So that's my Osmond speak for the evening. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, me.
2: Um, I'm going to sort of piggyback off of my junk before and talk about the New York Dolls. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, their debut album came out. Um, it's interesting because they got Todd Rundgren to produce it. And I think it's interesting to look at the state of record labels at this time too, because I mean, we'll talk about Island Records later, but Island Records is starting this year. Mercury is terrified to put out this record, you know, because of all just, it's 1973 socially. We're just going to say that. And it doesn't really sound like anything you can really put a finger on, like, 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 like the Iggy record, but it, Absolutely takes New York by storm, and I think that you know that first New York Dolls record and the opening of CBGBs in October mm. lays the groundwork for everything that was going to come in the '70s and the '80s with the New York music scene that we know. Yeah, that's a great and point, that's, and yeah. that's and that's huge um, because we don't get Talking Heads without the New York Dolls record. We don't get Blondie. We don't get the Ramones. We don't get Tom Tom Club. I mean, there's some television. We don't get any of that without that New York Dolls record. And thing uh, that that's a blistering record. All right,
0: I'm going to take it to more middle of the road stuff with Linda Ronstadt and "Don't Cry Now," which I I just think um, you know we spoke about this in another podcast about how certain artists would have a song out, certain artists would have the same song out at the same time, and this is this is one of those instances where Desperado. On this record became a huge, massive hit for her. And the Eagles' Desperado album was out this year as well and wasn't as big of a hit for them as it was for her, though it was their song, Don Henley's song. Um, But yeah, this was a huge, this was like the highest charting album of her career to this date. And I think it was like number 45 or so. And the album itself spent a year in the charts. So it was really like a, it had like staying power for her. And uh, she was, she was just on the radio all the time that year, really. (laughs) So that is, uh, I don't really, uh, you know, as far as Desperado Eagles record goes, I wasn't really that big of a fan and I don't really have much to say about that, but maybe one of you guys does. I don't know. I know it was, you know, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. right rather talk about linda
1: <laughs> right i mean their story is interesting in that they they evolved out of being her backup band yeah but yeah. you know that's that's about as much interest as i have in the eagles i mean not yeah. that i don't like them or anything i
2: just they're just not my thing yeah why would you talk about the eagles in 1973 when you could talk about david bowie
0: yeah exactly well,
2: that's that's a good point so why don't you david bowie makes two great records that year right um Pinups. I well, mean, he did a great job. He makes he one great... great
1: record. He makes one great record.
2: <laughs> well, I have learned to appreciate pinups more for what it is. I, I don't. I don't consider it to be like, you know, it is by no means Shakespeare, right? But David Bowie's cover record is better than a lot of people's other records. So yeah. um, he makes two records that year that are, um, you know, interesting. He's got a live record and he's got. Um, he's got uh, Latin saint. Good God. Um, you know, and he retired Ziggy. So it's, it's a yeah. really interesting time, um, for him, but he's also at the same time, changing the visual presentation of music, right? Um, also changing the idea of the artist's control of their image in music, which is also important. And he's also blatantly doing whatever the hell he wants, artistically in 1973 at a time when a lot of other people really can't. Um, except I, I'm i not sure, Alan will know this more than me, but I'm not really sure he wanted to put a covers record out. I think he would have rather just put out a work creatively and be left alone. Well, but, yeah.
1: I mean, I mean, he was ready to move on to Diamond Dogs by that point, but the record yeah. label was like, we have to, you're hot right now. We have to get a product on the market. Yeah. So they just went in the studio and like bashed out Pin covers and that was it, you know.
2: Yeah, but I, you know, I get, I get the impression that that was sort of under duress. I guess is my point. But well, uh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't his idea to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, he had a really outstanding year, and I think it's the year that Bowie sort of defined himself artistically in terms of what he wanted to do with controlling his music and his image and his output. Um, you know, I think that at this point, you know, Bowie's big, but I think bigger things are ahead. And I think that he is starting to realize that he can take more chances. And I think that's important for later down the road. Putting Ziggy Stardust to to rest in in July, I think really is emotionally and artistically freeing for him in a way that a lot of other artists have never had an event like that do for them. Uh, If that makes any sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to talk about some Beatles? solo albums
2: Ooh,
1: well i'll tell you what i'll set it up by by mentioning and we don't normally talk about like greatest hits albums or things like that and these kind of retrospectives but the beatles the the two compilations mm. the blue one and the and the red one 62 to 66 levels. and the second volume of 67 to 70 are just phenomenal hey. and that's coming out at the time when you know Beatles are doing things individually and the record labels not letting the group go. But it's this collection of like hits plus B-sides plus non-album singles. So a lot of those uh non-album singles hadn't been on a record before, like an album kind of record. Um, so it's a big deal, and they're great, they're really, really good collections. Yeah.
0: Yes. So I love um,
1: both of them. Yeah. So uh McCartney is having a hell of a year so he you know wings had done okay up until this point but 73 is really when wings starts to super get rolling and it kind of starts with uh high 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 which was the single that was released in december of 72 and it's still it like peaks on the charts in like january and february and that kind of thing he then releases my love um march 23rd which goes to number one they do a television special called James Paul McCartney on 16 April. And that's like just a, like a two hour special. That's just nothing but wing songs. Um, I don't even think they did any Beatles in that special. They may have. I don't remember, but I think it was all just wing stuff. The album Red Rose Speedway comes out April 30th. Um, a couple of uh, well, there was and then the big single, the big one live and let die <laughs> from the James Bond movie comes out June 1st, and that is enormous for them. Helen Wheels comes out later as like the first track from uh, Band on the Run, and then December 5th, Band on the Run, one of the greatest Wings album ever. Ever. So that is a, this is like the first huge year for McCartney and Wings.
0: Huge. Yeah, huge. I love uh, the NME quote that I that I pulled from, from the wiki page, I'll tell you. <laughs> When uh, Charles Sh- Charles Murray writes, the ex-Beatle least likely to reestablish his credibility and lead the field has pulled it off with a positive masterstroke of an album. And that is just so perfect for that Band on the Run album.
1: Interesting that he would think he that McCartney is the least likely.
0: I know. I guess, he, I don't know. I think there was a lot of Paul criticism during the early years. Yeah,
1: I think that's probably true.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, he was sort of looked at like the uncool Beatle, I think, even though it's weird. I mean, to, to think about that now, it's crazy, but, right. but I think he was.
2: Right. And I think, too, that, you know, at this time, Lennon's got got music coming out. Yoko's got records yeah. coming out. Ringo's got his own little oh, that wacky Ringo record, you know, is out. And George and I,
0: has really got the heavy, meaningful, soulful, you know. Yeah. And yeah. I think
2: that, you know, and I think that. Also, I think McCartney was the one that wanted sort of to just retreat and make music on yeah. his own. And I think that kind of hurt him, too. But live and, let, live and Let Die, I mean, even when I was five, I knew that that was a record that was, like, big and bold and loud. I'm just like, what is yes. this? Right? Yeah. I didn't know what James Bond was. Um, and my dad wouldn't tell me. Well, but, that's funny, because uh,
1: I don't think I knew what James Bond was either when I first heard it. Because yeah. I was I was kind of young at the time. and. You know, I, I don't even think that I knew that it was a theme song to a movie.
0: Yeah, I might I'm not, not even be, I'm sure I knew what
1: a theme song to a movie was.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what the hell did I know then?
2: No. <laughs> right. I, I just remember too that it being one of the early instances that I remember when I look back upon that time of that, like the song structure was not an ordinary song structure that I remember hearing. Mm-hmm. I just remember hearing going. This doesn't sound like in all the other records that are played on the radio. What is this? Mm-hmm. So that's probably one of the reasons why it still sort of resonates with me. And mm-hmm. um, it's the great thing about "Living let the you can always listen to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, it is like a timeless kind of thing. I mean,
2: it? you can just always, always listen to it. It's, yeah. it's. Well,
0: that although oh, this, uh, I think this period of Wings is oh is timeless too. I just think that everything yeah. holds up. It really does.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: We can talk about George Harrison, though. Do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're living in the material world, if you're going to have a follow-up to All Things Must Pass, this is a pretty good one to have. Yeah, Um, true. Yeah. I think it would probably be daunting to kind of think, what am I going to do next? But uh, he pulled it off. Um, Give Me Love was a a very big single for him. Uh, And I think that, Again, he's just digging into his soul here for for lyrics and for just whatever his truth is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like He's just digging down deep and and kind of showing himself to the world, which I just think it's it's beautiful. Yes. Not to be totally corny and whatever, but <laughs> <laughs> it does sound corny. But
1: well, I mean, true. if you're talking about corny, you know, one of the songs is "The Light That Has Lighted the yeah. World." I mean come on. I but I mean it's it's it means something to him. It's so personal to him.
0: Yeah, like Bob said in a in a previous podcast when we were talking about George Harrison. Yeah. Uh, he was truly it, it, to, to him that meant this whole the whole religious and, you know, way of life meant everything to him. He would do anything. He would take that over anything, mm-hmm. even music. That's oh, yeah. how much it meant to him. So right, to right, him right. it wasn't corny and he was just he yeah. was just spreading his message.
1: Yeah. Give me love. Give me peace on earth. Great song.
0: Mm-hmm. Try yeah.
1: some, buy some. Uh, was covered like 20 years later by Bowie. Um, it's, just a, it's just a really good album. Yeah. Solid stuff. Yeah.
2: And the title song,
1: of course, is just classic.
2: Yep. So looking at, I know we looked at the Beatles, but I want to um, dissect the Velvet Underground at this time. Mm. Um, yeah. So Lou Reed's made Berlin, which I still think is one of his most intriguing records. And it's kind of been reevaluated, you know, since his death a little bit uh, more than it probably would normally have been. It's not regarded as a masterpiece, but it's kind of regarded as better than we all thought it was in 1973. Right. But then John Cale makes Paris 1919, which is his most accessible record that he's ever made. Uh, It's certainly the only record he's ever made that sort of follows any sort of convention in terms of like a a record. And it's interesting to see both of those guys making fundamentally different albums that would sort of define who they were, right? Mm -hmm. Reed sort of establishes himself as I'm going to make kind of the albums I want. I don't care about commercial success. Some of it will be inaudible, some of it will just be odd, right? Uh, John Cale, though, is worried about making records that are art, right? His, his music is sort of has a purpose and he sort of sees it as a composition similar to how a painter paints, right? And you, so the Kale records after this kind of get a little more off base. And um, Reed kind of also does the same thing and is kind of a competition in many ways to like who can make the more arty record for a while. But I just think when you listen to the Kale record and the Lou Reed record at the same time, that Kale record is really, really a solid piece of songwriting and, and, and production and recording. The Reed record is an artist, I think, that has an idea knows where he wants to go with it and do it. But I don't think he's completely in his shell yet of I want to be bolder. I think Lou Reed is sort of beginning, just beginning to kind of come into his own. Right. Um and again, Berlin puts Lou Reed on a path later to converge with a guy named David
0: Bowie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a guy. David
2: Bowie converges with just like everything this <laughs> yes. he's like the and center and of the next, universe. And you know, brilliant. we got we got two Roxy music records that year. We got Stranded and then yeah. we got Free Your Pleasure. And then Brian Ferry's got a solo record as well. So Brian Ferry also had a good nineteen seventy-three with these foolish things. And it's, it's, you know, uh, Roxy Music, I don't think still, by 1973, got a lot of the critical success that they would get later. I think when New Wave broke yeah, uh, is when people started to look back at Roxy Music again, right? But they're really doing some interesting stuff with those records. But um, you're right.
0: They didn't really hit the, the success wave until a little later. Yeah. You know, I just can, I, I want to jump back to soundtracks and Rob, you were saying something about how, um, I guess it was Island's debut album from, what was it? Marley? Bob Marley? Yeah. Bob, yeah. Um, so I should know that. I used to work there. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> and was, I, also, I was you, testing I, you. Yeah, I also used <laughs> so to work at Virgin Records. And this was an interesting album that um, sort of got Virgin on the map a little more, which is Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Uh, I don't think you could... Uh, go anywhere that year without hearing that eerie theme song to The Exorcist. Yeah. Um, It was, it actually really the album started off kind of slow for them but that, that's, that movie and the sound, the theme song um, blew, blew it up as the kids say. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I mean that's the creepy as hell movie and creepy as hell song. (laughs) Just this by association. Yeah. But yeah, so that was that actually really helped Virgin kind of put put the Virgin on the map, I should say.
2: And, you know, um, at the same time, you've got Kraftwerk with Ralph and Florian. I think mm. they're, hold on there. Third album. Mm-hmm. And both of those albums would be, if Richard Evans would, were here, um, <laughs> he would tell us that those, those records were kind of fundamental in laying the groundwork for you know, the electro synth stuff we'd get in the eighties and the stuff we get now. Yep. But I also think that tubular bells really sort of moved away from being a soundtrack album and it almost became like a concept album almost in the I same know. way that the Pink Floyd record was.
0: I know you're right. That's such a good point. Yep.
2: It really got embraced by an underground group of kids in, in, in a way that people didn't know at the time. Um, you know, I just remember in the mid '80s somebody saying, "Have you heard Tubular Bells?" And I'm like, "No." And like, you need to listen to Tubular Bells. Like, it was like a thing to like listen to this in the '80s, right? So it's one of those records that's ahead of its time. Now that third Craftwork record is not, you know, really super remarkable, but it does have a lot of elements in there that you would see later with Audubon
0: mm-hmm. um, that yeah. would
2: really sort of shape them down the road later. And they're sort of just kind of getting. Uh, but it's also putting craft, it's also the time that you get craft work in the States kind of, hey, what is this, right? And I think, I think craft work uh, later success, this record sort of gets them some notoriety. But I think that also having a lot of the prog records around that Alan talked about at the same time as the craft work record really sort of opened up a lot of um, artists to the idea of making songs that weren't traditional pop songs of like three minutes, four minutes, right? You know, following traditional structures. And I think that you hear new production values coming out of these records. Um and I think you really see a move towards embracing different technologies and different ways of making records that the mainstream rock guys aren't doing or and a lot of the soul guys aren't doing. I mean Stevie Wonder's doing some of it, but not a lot of these other guys are doing.
0: Did we cover Elvis Co- Elvis Costello? Sorry. <laughs> Do we cover Elvis Presley enough? Because I don't know if we if we mm. just I was waiting for
2: you. Um yeah, take it.
0: I, I I because I it's to me, it's just incredible that he had four albums out this this year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I know that this the the out al- the record company put put that one compilation out, but he has two studio albums out that year and that double live album, Aloha from Hawaii, which was when when any Anytime you think of Elvis live, does your mind not flash to that stage with him on it from Hawaii? Yeah, that's true.
2: That's true.
0: Um,
2: yeah. I, I think, and, and you will know this better than than me, but I think this is around the time when Elvis kind of breaks with his label and kind of begins to sort of have more control over his career and playing and doing things, right? It's, it's,
0: almost,
2: it's almost too little too late with, with Elvis at this point, but he's kind of starting to take control of – He's got it, it kind of, he's in the throes of the comeback, right? Yes. Um, this, oh,
0: the, the comeback was 68 though. But I mean, this is more like he's doing the residency at, you know. Yeah. The, he's yeah. got the
2: wave of the comeback still. Yeah. yeah. But um, the point being is that, you know, Elvis is kind of, the comebacks happened. He's still riding that wave of that, but he's also gotten a lot more artistic independence. So, trying at least, trying. Well, the idea too, of 1973 of a residency by an artist is like a huge thing. Yeah. Right. It's like no, no. I'm not going to go to ten thousand other places. Y'all are going to come to me. Oh That's a, yeah. whole, new, that's a whole new concept. Yeah. So you got, so got Elvis doing a satellite concert, which is a whole new concept, right? It sort of sets the stage for pay-per-view or pay what you wish, or you know, the idea of a of a concert as an as a global event, kind of. Yeah. Um, and it really helps Elvis because Elvis didn't get to tour overseas, so it really gets Elvis out there globally later in his career definitely but you know just even the thought of releasing three albums even if it's two albums and a best of is huge but like that prodigious output of that year it's like that is just exhausting
0: yeah i was thinking the same thing because the way he sings too i mean he every puts everything into every song so and (laughs) you know he wasn't in the greatest shape of his life at that point he yet he's still doing that you know he it it was it, it was a little bit before his severe decline but he, he was still not yeah. in the greatest of health
2: and he's Elvis. So outside of making records, he has to work every day at being Elvis. Which yeah. It's sort of like in 1973, the Beatles are still massively huge, but Elvis is also I know. incredibly huge. And there's not a lot of people that we can talk about now that in 1973, we're like, yeah, that's
0: super, super stardom.
2: Yeah. yeah super, it, super it's stardom. very much a development year. Right. Um, but like, yeah, the Beatles and Elvis. I mean, that's kind of it, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, the
0: bands that we think of now today, like you you know, like Bruce, you're saying earlier, Alan, how you never you don't think of Bruce as not ever being a huge household name, but that he wasn't then. It was yeah, the Beatles. Yeah. It was Elvis. It was yeah. I
2: I remember too looking back at 1968, and I know you talked a little bit about some of this before. But I remember not being able to go anywhere without that Tony Orlando and Don record playing. Oh, I, I remember going. To my, I remember going to my grandma's and seeing him on TV. I think I stayed with my grandma for a weekend that year, and I think I saw Tony Orlando on some kind of TV. Well, it's his own show. He remembered them, yeah, the Tony Orlando. They Dolan. had a variety okay, show. show. Yeah, well, there you go, I then. used to watch that
0: all the
1: time. Oh, I watched there, it all the time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I, um,
0: Rob's just, five-year-old memory actually had like a little um,
2: <laughs> right. I'm, I didn't mean to cause triggers. I think it was um, a TV show. <laughs> well, I just I, I just remember that record was like everywhere. Oh yeah, um, it was. That's kind of the first first music I have like that record being everywhere. Uh it was just like and well, they sung it reason- every week on that show. That was they,
0: they <laughs> opened. It. No, they did though. That that was
2: I went, open. Th- huh? I went through my my brother's 45s. Um, this weekend and the one other record that year that's in his 1973 section is Grand Funk Railroad. Oh yeah. Grand Funk, I mean, Grand Funk Railroad was a big friggin' deal.
1: I mean, I'm kind of amazed. So I want to get a couple of other things in. Uh, And Stephanie, when you were doing your list of bands that did multiple albums that year, you missed a couple. Oh, Fleetwood Mac did two albums that year in March and in October. And this is sort of that that middle, well, not middle at this point, but that that in-between period when it's not the original peter green lineup anymore and lindsey and stevie haven't come in yet and you've got um at this point you've the band is basically led by christine McVie and bob welch Mm -hmm. and uh they put out penguin and mystery to me both of which are fabulous albums i don't think it's the best that that lineup did i think that's still bare trees from the previous year um which had danny kirwan on it and i just absolutely love danny kirwan but penguin and mystery to me are both great records um it just really solid uh stuff from both of the song songwriters and then alice cooper um in november put out muscle of love which is not one of his more popular albums i'm just going to say that that's not one of the biggies but earlier that year in march billion dollar babies oh my god was yeah. enormous i mean the, the the title track was a big single no more mr nice guy was huge you've got uh Hello Hooray, which was a great one. Elected, which was just insane. And then some great, really like Alice Cooper-y kind of songs like Sick Things and I Love the Dead, you know, where he's playing <laughs> up on the, the horror angle, you know. Such a good record. I love that album so much. And that's a so, good one. Yeah.
0: yeah. And talk about influence on glam, on punk, yeah. on um hair metal, even you just oh that whole dramatic. Theater, theatrical aspect of it
1: yeah and with kiss you know coming yeah. together in this year hugely influenced by all the stuff that alice cooper is doing and when their first album comes out next year 74 you're gonna see you know the, the 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 real the first bit of impact that alice cooper had on the music industry as far as like people who he influenced people who were like inspired you know them to do their career so yeah hugely mm-hmm. influential
0: yeah Love that guy did i forget anyone else <laughs> that I had more think. than one album
1: <laughs> well we didn't spend it? any time talking about yoko ono's two albums oh. sadly <laughs>
0: <laughs> we and we didn't touch on ike and tina although one That's of true. those was one was a studio album it was let me touch your mind with studio but the other one was a live album though it was a double album so it was a big yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yep
1: yeah it's good yeah. stuff great year <laughs> And that was the year 1973. Three. three so we'll three, take three. a break. <laughs> yeah, Sunday, <laughs> Sunday, Sunday. We will take a break right here. We'll be right back in 30 seconds with our picks of the week. So stick around.
2: Hey, everyone. This is Carrie from the Metal Geeks podcast. Thanks for geeking out with us for the past 10 years. Yes, I said that 10 years that we've been doing this. Talking about video games and metal and TV and movies and comic books and theme parks and all that other cool stuff. Check us out on our website at metalgeeks.net and on all the socials at metalgeeks. We are proud members of the ESO network. Keep it geeky and keep it metal.
1: All right, we're back. So here's our picks of the week. What have we been listening to? What have we been reading? What have we been watching? Rob. What's on your mind?
2: Uh, well, um, sadly, I've been listening to a ton of Burke Backrack records. Mm. Perhaps no one has left their fingerprints on American pop music more um, than Burt Backrack. Everyone from Dionne Warwick to Tom Jones and What's New Pussycat, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, work with Bobber Streisand. The uh, albums that he made with uh, Elvis Costello, uh, obviously, are, are like just huge. <laughs> you know, and then his own records that he made, but like soundtracks like Casino Royale, things like that, um, mm-hmm. you know, stuff on Broadway, just a hugely prolific artist. And, you know, the, the stuff that he did with Dion Warwick, you know, if that's all he ever did, is amazing. Mm-hmm. If the stuff he did with, um, uh, Elva Costello is all he did, that's pretty amazing too. But like his own self-titled record from 1971, right? That thing is amazing. Um, then there's, uh, Background plays his hits, which is like, I think, the mid-60s, like 64, 65. That's incredible, too. So um, we knew it was coming because he was 94. But just a profoundly huge, huge artist in American popular music, um, whether it's Broadway, soundtracks, pop records, the guys everywhere. So just a hugely big loss for American music. And I, I, I hope people that arrange... Produce or write their own music. Find some time to listen to Burt Bacharach in the coming weeks, and just really appreciate that, like him making a recording was a masterclass in radio pro- or no uh, record production. And it's just it's just sad. I mean, he did he did records with literally everybody that mattered. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm also excited about a couple things. Uh, Depeche Mode dropped Ghost again, uh, their first new single without Andy Fletcher. Uh, from their forthcoming album that comes out, I think, in April. And um, great, Depeche Mode's making an album about grief. <laughs> um, having said that, it is actually surprisingly good. It is just painfully, painfully sad, right? Mm. Um, but I like that a lot. And then an interesting band uh, is called The Wave. And my desire, my ire to bands that uh, put extra, cons, extra vowels in their name is now rivaled by bands that put a all the So it's the wave W A E V E. right? Yeah. And it's um, Graham Coxon, a blur. Oh, and Graham. then, uh, yeah. And then uh, Rose Eleanor, who used to be in a band called the Pipettes, but also sang out a bunch of other records. It's a really nice little pop record. Um, oh, cool. I want to hear that. Yeah, it's really, really good. So I like that. And then M 83 dropped half of their new album fantasy this week, the first six tracks from that are out. And if you like just sort of like big electronic soundscapes, um, I recommend that. And then I'm also uh, gonna recommend uh, a book called 1973 rock at the crossroads came out, I think in 2018 or 2019 by Andrew Grant Jackson. And it's all about the different music that came out in 1973, its legacy and what it means to us today. Well, so damn! I guess companion. we should have read that book before we did yeah.
0: this. <laughs> it's like a companion to this episode.
2: Well, I read it like I think about two years ago, and I, I didn't go back to it for the show because I just kind of wrote on everything kind of around. But I just remember that I had that. I'm like, oh yeah. So do read that if you want to know more about '73 and sort of like the uh, the circumstances of some of these records being made and more info on it. It's it's really good. Super. Well, Steffi?
0: Okay. My pick is a new album with eight songs on it by a band called Birdfeeder. Feeder. Interesting. <laughs> and this is not the Bird Feeder from Australia. This is a Bird Feeder band, the band Bird Feeder from this area here in the Northeast. The album's called Woodstock, and it's Mark Mulcahy from Miracle Legion. Uh, Chris Harford, who many of you might know from uh, – he has an album It's one of my top hundred favorite albums of all times called beheaded. And it was on Electra, but he's and a solo artist. He's played in a lot of bands and just done a lot of stuff throughout his career. He's amazing. So he's on guitar and bass and Kevin Salem from dump truck, also a solo artist and also played guitar in bands like Yola Tango, Freddie Johnson's band and Chris Harford, who's on this record too. So, um, These three guys got together, made a great eight-song album. Uh, Kevin Salem produced it. And my friend and wonderful mastering person who masters my album, his name is Scott Anthony. He mastered this at his studio Storybook Sound. Um, It's really a very... It sounds like lo-fi, kind of like very. It's almost like you feel like you're in the room with these guys when they're when when you're listening to the album. That's really so cool. It, it's like you're. It's it feels like it's live almost, but it's def, it's clearly not. You know, but I think the lyrics were really moving. I, there's one song on there that's called "Cousin" that's only a minute and a half long, and it's you know so. Packed emotionally with the lyrics, uh, when what it says in just that short amount of time. I just thought it was, you know, just like a gut punch kind of thing. So, anyway, digital albums out now, vinyl's coming out in May. Check out Bird Feeder, and their album is called Woodstock.
1: Cool. Well, speaking of books that are about the year 1973, Rob while we were recording, this made me aware of an, of a, of a book called 1973, the year in progressive rock mm-hmm. dude. dude that has my name on it. So I'm, I've got to order that. I've got so many books that I have to read this year, but I now have to add another one to it. Sorry. So yeah, I know. Right. But it, it's something that, I, you know, I've got to read that. And, and the other thing that I've kind of been listening to um, for the last couple of days um, we got, a mention of it last week um from stephanie uh, the band quasi yeah, yeah who i'm was unfamiliar with and uh she mentioned the a new single the album is called breaking the balls of history and Next. she mentioned the song doom scrollers and the album came out a couple of days ago on the 10th and so i've been listening to it and it's great talk about lo-fi first of all it's, it's, it's pretty lo-fi but it it sort of has this aggressive kind of ugly kind of like you know noisy sound to it yeah. but the songs are so good i really really enjoy it a lot so i'm i can't wait to spend some more time with that
0: and it's isn't his voice like yeah isn't his voice i, I at first i was kind of like i don't know what i'm thinking about his with but it kind of reminded me a little bit of David Lowry from Cracker, but like I, it really just grew on me uh, yeah. almost immediately. And mm-hmm. I love their harmonies too; I think they sound amazing when they sing together.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a song on it called "Shitty Is Pretty," which might be my favorite song title ever. And then there's a series of songs: uh, "Doomscrollers," "In Betweenness," "Nowhere'sville." That just you know they kind of had like. A similar uh, theme as far as their their the song name goes, but they're just great songs. So I, I definitely recommend people going and listen to that quasi cool. great stuff. Breaking the balls of history. What a so. title. All right. So that does it for us this week. Stephanie, where can people find more of you if they wanted to find more of you outside of our podcast?
0: You can find me on Bandcamp under my name. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. You can find me on Instagram at their underscore r underscore birds. And I have a website also, therearbirds.com. And you can also find me on all the streaming platforms like Spotify and stuff like that.
2: Woohoo. Woohoo. Rob. Rob. So uh, you can find me on uh, the radio on Wednesday nights on a show called Juxtaposition. It's Wednesdays from 7 to 9 central. And if you have a lot of things to do, that's okay, because it's archived for two weeks. You can listen to the archive stream. So maybe you go to bed early, or maybe you're watching Happy Days Rerun. You can um, (laughs) listen to the archive stream at kdhx.org for my show or any of the other shows. And if you don't like my show, listen to some of the other ones or find your local community radio station and find a show you like there, because there's a lot of people doing great work. Um, that aren't on commercial radio. So uh, you can find me there also on the weekend justice podcast uh, for neatcoffee.com. All right.
1: I will interject at this point that Anthony has a podcast called watchers in the fourth dimension. It's a doctor who podcast where they are chronicling the history of doctor who from the very first story broadcast in 1963. Um, they have made it up through the middle of the 13th season. And you can find that at uh, Watchers in the Fourth Dimension on Podbean, Apple, Google, all those places where you find podcasts. And as he likes to say, probably wherever you're listening to this one. Mm -hmm. So go find that. And then for me, you can go to Cosmic Creative. That's K-O-Z-M-I-C creative.com. And you can see a bunch of dumb books that I've written (laughs) and some great books that I've published by other author authors and some list of my podcasts. So yeah. there you go. All right. We will be back next week. I'm going to say that with confidence. We're going to be back next week and till then, have a great week. See you soon. Rock on and be good and do good in the world.
0: This has been a broadcast of the ESO network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the T Public store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.